This is Coffee Break with New York Wiki. I'm your host, Julie Hockheiser Ilkovich, and we're here today with our guest, Claire Wasserman. Claire, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. I mean, you couldn't see me, but I was doing like <laughs> woo woo with my hands, which I should remember this is audio. She's raising the roof. Yeah. It's, it's exciting. We're, we're very excited here. Claire, tell us about what you're doing now and the organization that you're running. Sure. So I run an organization called Ladies Get Paid. Um, we help women rise up at work, and we're doing that through workshops and town halls. We have a private Slack group where literally 4,000 women are on it and they're sharing, you know, salary negotiating tips and articles and resources and jobs. Um, and so our goal really is to get women to advocate for their worth. Yes, it can be money, but it can be so much more than that as well. Um, so we have a whole range of programming and we started it in New York, but we've moved beyond that and we're beginning to do in-person events all over, this, all over the country. And that's, that's my focus right now. It's great. And, and how does someone get involved in this organization? Easy. Sign up at ladiesgetpaid.com. Totally free. Very proud of that. Um, and once you sign up, you'll get access to that private Slack group. I'm sorry, guys, but it's women only, <laughs> um, for now at least. And, uh, and then you'll get our newsletter every week, and that'll let you know what events are upcoming. Um, and everything's a very low price point beyond that. So if you do want to attend a workshop or a town hall, um, you're looking at like $15, $20. It's really, really important to us that, that this be as inclusive as possible, and we're also industry agnostic. Um, I think you know, women across the board, wherever they live, or what stage of career, or whatever industry, there are some challenges that are universal. So we're we're going after the stuff that we find that most women tell us that they are struggling with, and so in large part that is negotiating. That's been sort of the number one challenge that women write in when they sign up for Ladies Get Paid. Other times it's you know feeling like I don't belong there. Either the environment at work is one that they don't see themselves in, you know, could be toxic or could just simply be, you know, a bunch of white bros playing ping pong. Um, and so then how do they speak up about that? And how do they do it in a way that doesn't burn bridges? So a lot of the programming, I think, is more about strategy in your career. So it's empowering, but it's action-oriented for sure. How, is, how are you funded? So it is uh, funded by my credit card. I'm in, in full disclosure, I'm in a lot of debt. So don't do that, guys. I mean, you know, invest in yourself, but getting a small business grant is probably a smarter way to go. My business model is that I split my profits 50-50. So for a town hall that's run in another city besides New York, there's an organizing committee and they take 50% of the profits. Same thing with the uh, workshops. Mm -hmm. Whatever the ticket sales are, the instructor takes 50%. Um, so that's the kind of model that I think is, you know, it's important that everybody's getting paid. But as a startup, it's actually really helpful for me because I didn't have to have capital up front to do it. Mm -hmm. um, so it was people in my life who are willing to take a risk. Maybe they're not going to make any money from this class. Um, so it's based on the ticket sales. This organization is so timely. I mean, this is the conversation that we're having, especially within New York Women in Communications, trying to be comfortable talking about finances. And I think that, I mean, you can tell me more than anyone, women are not right? They're not talking about it. Um, and you're creating this conversation. How did you start this organization? Because it's so perfect, timely. We need it so much. How did it happen? Yeah, it's, sort of, it's sort of wild that I started this way before the election shenanigans. Right. It's funny. Whenever I get asked, how did I start this? I almost want to take it back to my childhood. Mm -hmm. Point being is it's all of these experiences that accumulate over your lifetime that end up contributing to what you're doing and who you are, right? 
Um, so there's many startup ideas that I'd had, some things that I tried to do and failed. And I, I laugh at it because I really incorporated a lot of that into what I'm doing now. Mm -hmm. Yes, there was a moment. There was something I experienced that became the catalyst for wanting to do something in this space. And it was, you know, going to this advertising festival, uh, a week-long festival in the south of France. Super excited about it. Um, I show up, I go into a party. Yes, there were a lot of men there, but you know, that's sometimes how it is in advertising. And the first thing out of this man's mouth was, whose wife are you? Oh my God. And it, oh my God. I was just, I mean, in a way, I want to thank that man because he started Ladies Get Paid, essentially. Um, <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Yeah, right? So, and you know, it was a week of like things like that happening. And I went home, I felt really weird about it, and I internalized it. I kept asking myself, what did I do to contribute to this? So, you know, falling into this kind of typical uh, internalizing, it's my fault, it's my fault. And then it struck me that in my entire career, and I'm 30 now, um, I actually have been experiencing a lot of this, but in um, subconscious way, mm -hmm. or like what they call micro-misogyny. And sometimes it was more blatant than others. Um, but I'm so ambitious, moving so fast, believe that I live in this post-feminist world of we're all empowered, we're all equal. But I also don't think I was taking the time to acknowledge that there were dynamics at play mm -hmm. and that this frustration and exhaustion that I'd had in a lot of my career was coming from me trying to figure it out and not being able to pinpoint it or talking about it with my girlfriends or friends in general. Right, or at all, probably. And what I did was I just started to read. You know, I started to research um, not so much feminism because I, at that point, was felt really distanced from that word. Mm -hmm. I still... You know, it's not me. I don't hate men. You know, that was how I associated it, unfortunately. Right. Um, so what I was looking into was more, who are the decision makers? Not just in advertising, but in all industries. What's the gender split when you look at the top? It's really bad. Right. It was worse than I thought. And then I read, and this was the statistic, I think, that really startled me into doing this. It's when I read that Hispanic women make 55 cents to the dollar. Now, it's not just how you know, egregiously unjust that is. It actually was more that I didn't know. Right. I had thought it was 78 cents to the dollar. And I realized, my God, like, obviously, you know, anybody who is a higher level of woke, as we say, would be rolling their eyes going, well, of course. But, I mean, what's written about tends to be whatever white people are making. Right. And that was the 78 cents. And then the further I went down the rabbit hole of looking into women of color and, I mean, I'm just going to throw out one statistic here. Black female entrepreneurs... They are the fastest growing entrepreneurial segment in the U.S. And they are making $44 billion in revenue a year. Amazing. Right. Amazing. amazing. 2% are getting invested in by VCs at an average of $36,000. Now, I look at that, and again, I don't go to, like, the ethics of it. Right? We know that that's Right. I mean, it's horrible. Right. It's economically amazing. foolish. Who wants to make money? How about we invest in them? And so there are so many cases like this where it is proven, McKinsey has written many reports about this, that companies would do better financially if we had more diversity at the top. Um, so that's one side of it. And then the other side, obviously, is the gender wage gap. Mm -hmm. um, and America is just woefully below, um, we were 45th in rankings when you look at the world in terms of gender equality in the workplace. And we're behind four African countries and all major European countries. Now, we know America's you know, super progressive in many ways, and then in some ways, like the lack of parental leave, right. we're not. And it's really, really hurting women, and it's hurting companies, and it's hurting families. Um, it took me a year to do anything about it, though. I have to say, it was just doing. It was like, all right, I'm learning all these things. I'm feeling overwhelmed. And then you ask yourself, well, what can I 
possibly do. Mm-hmm. This is way too big. Right. And way I think so many women feel that way where it's like you, you're not going to be able to tackle it alone necessarily. And it seems scary. So we stay away from it. Yes. What have you found in your research, through your work? Like, is, is all of this happening just because of the history of our country and, you know, it was just male, work was male dominated? Is it a, you know, military model? People sometimes talk about our workplaces almost being structured more like military than what actually would be productive and helpful. Like, do you have any insight on what, why this is other than sexism and whatever else, you know, why this is happening? Yeah, I think, I mean, I always bring it down to just the way that we're socialized Mm -hmm. um, because girls, when they turn six, um, I don't know if you read about this in the New York Times, Mm -hmm. but they, that's when they start saying, um, basically they're asked the question, who is smart in this class? Like, who do you think is smart? And they say, the boys. And they say, who's hardworking? And they say, the girls. The girls. (laughs) Now, that's happening at age six. So that's one part of it, the socialization. And then we get older, and then there are companies, plus the history of women not working. When you think about it, we've come a long way in a short period of time. Now we're just, um, I'm just impatient. You know, I'm like, we need to speed this up even faster. Um, So I'm not satisfied with... Uh, with how far we've gotten, but I, I do want to acknowledge that, I mean, women couldn't vote, you know, women of color couldn't vote. I mean, you know, so we've, we've made huge strides and I, and fortunately I think people tend to assume that means it's over. I think there's a real biological element here that I don't want to ignore, which is women have children and it does take them out of the game. It just does mm-hmm. physically. They may need to take some time off. So I can see it from an employer's standpoint where they now have to figure out how that works mm-hmm. in the company. And what happens during that time that she took off? There's also, I think I've heard from a lot of mothers that they are way more efficient. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've become better workers because of it. Also, we're going now in a direction where companies are embracing flexibility more mm-hmm. and more. So that allows, you know, those who have families, I don't want to just say women, but they can work at a top level. It just doesn't necessarily have to be in an office. Mm-hmm. But those are companies that, you know, maybe tech companies or younger companies, if it's really corporate, that's just not the environment that was created from the beginning. And it is hard to make change. And it it creates an environment, and I'm sure you have seen this working with so many women, it creates an environment among women where it's like, we're and, you know, there's been a lot written about this in the past couple of years. Like, you know, if you're forced to cover someone's maternity leave and they're and you're doing two full-time jobs and you're not being compensated. Like it's just not a yep. healthy environment for right. anyone. And then even if there is flexibility, I mean, so many people feel shamed if right. they take it. Right. So, yeah. You know, it's again, economic argument to be made though. You know how much it costs America to have a trip or how much it costs American companies for attrition a year. So this is if somebody leaves the company it's $541 billion that American companies lose when they have employees that leave. That includes women, obviously. So again, economic argument to be made for having a culture shift in a company mm-hmm. to allow for you know, more flexibility plus getting people to get out of the mindset of shame if they take it. Right. The numbers speak for themselves. <laughs> it's like, it's you don't very think frustrating. I'm like, I hated statistics in college. I was terrible at math. But look what I'm doing. I'm right. Like, how else are you going to listen to me? And I don't even know if they are going to listen to this. Again, I think it's interesting. Some of this stuff is very complicated and then other things aren't. So like blatant misogyny, not complicated. Right. This micro misogyny, is this happening? Is it not? That's a lot of our conversations that ladies get paid. Mm-hmm. It's, I'm not quite sure if something's off, but I, I don't feel right about this situation. I'm right, 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 right. 
So how has the election impacted what you're doing? It must have just oh my God. thrown you for a total loop. Uh, yeah, I, I was definitely in my little liberal bubble of looking at my Facebook feed and having nobody disagree with my pro-Hillary stuff. Um, I threw a party uh, the night of the election with a couple of other women's organizations. We had 300 people show up. Oh my gosh. We did it in a space that had massive projectors all over the walls. That is not how you want to see her lose. I had to leave my own party. I went home and I got an extra large pizza. It crawled into bed. I was devastated. I woke up in the morning and I had a text message from somebody in my community. And she said, it's go time. We got to go. And I felt amazing because I also realized that I had not just a responsibility. I had this opportunity where I could step up and rally women. Whereas everyone else in the community, they're waking up going, what can I, again, me a year ago saying, well, what can I possibly do? I can't make an impact. I can't make a difference. But but I woke up being like, I actually can do something here. And um, at the time we, um, a friend of mine, we'd been like thinking about, could we make a magazine for ladies get paid? Could there be some kind of print piece? I called her after the election and I said, you know what our print piece should be? A workplace bill of rights. It should be some kind of manifesto that gets these women to declare their values and we commemorate it somehow. We scheduled an emergency town hall. Um, I wasn't planning on doing one for like two months. Thought I was on vacation. Oops. Oh, gosh. Uh, Through this thing, it was 120 women came. And um, it was a little bit of a different kind of town hall. Normally, I have seven women that share their stories first. In this case, it was an interview between myself and um, Hillary Clinton's former director, deputy director of operations. And it was asking her first what it was like to be on the campaign. But then second, what is it like to lose? And she's very positive. And I saw women in the audience crying, you know, so there was some catharsis there, but then we got productive, which is what our town halls are all about. Mm -hmm. The story sharing, but leading into action steps. We broke the room up into groups and we had them write out a list of all the things that they wanted their government and their bosses to do that could help them thrive at work. So I do want to mention, you know, this isn't about demands. It's about saying, don't you want me to be the best worker you can have? Then I'll let you know what I need. Mm -hmm. And usually it's an environment thing. Um, they wrote that list. I had each of the groups pick the top three things on the list. What were their deal breakers? So when we came back together, we made a collective list based on everybody's top three. And we've now compiled it into a book that we've just printed called The Workplace Bill of Rights. Wow. Yeah. And it's 10 bucks. And then this month, because it's International Women's History Month, um, we're giving 10% of the proceeds to a nonprofit called She Should Run, which helps get women elected. I'm a man. I am into She Should Run. Yes. Yeah. They're fantastic. And that also speaks, I think, this example of what I'm talking about, how I've handled the election, is really emblematic of the way that I am and want to run Ladies Get Paid. We are not a nonprofit, but I want my percentage of what I do to contribute to nonprofits. I want to involve activism in it, um, but it's I mean, everybody should have a workplace bill of rights. I know it came from interviewing, you know, having this Hillary, post-Hillary catharsis. But, you know, when you read the Bill of Rights, it's just about getting respect at work. Um, it, there's nothing about it that would be partisan. So that's important. It, it was event-based. It was crowdsourced. You know, the ideas generated there, contributed. Um, there's an online component to it because we've all discussed it through Slack. And then there's a printed piece. So, you know, and it's e-commerce. I think that's important, too. I, yeah. you know. I, lady needs to get paid. Right. Please buy this book. Like it's ten dollars. I'm keeping the price point low. Otherwise, I'm gonna have so many of these in my house, and my husband will not be happy about it. So. <laughs> You're gonna be using them for all kinds of things yeah. around the house, it, and it's available on the website. It is. Okay. Yeah.
Great. Awesome. So what is your background? Where did you start? You know, what were your, where did you go to college? And then what were your internships? What was the path that led you here? I mean, we got almost, you know, almost to this point. Yeah. So in, um, well, gosh, I always felt a duty to give back. Um, that was something very much instilled in my parents. I come from a pretty social justice family, at least on my father's side. And for my mother, you know, she has always worked in the opera. Um, and I sang in the opera, in the children's choir in New York wow. when I was six. What I learned from her was empathy and putting yourself in the shoes of others, especially if you're becoming a character. And I did acting theater my whole life and loved movies. So I, I want to bring that up just because the empathy part is something that has been a through line into everything I'm doing and is a huge, huge component of what I bring to Ladies mm-hmm. Get Paid. When I moved to D.C., I was, um, gosh, I was about 12 years old, and I wanted to go into politics, um, as one does. So I actually interned at the Senate when I was 16. I was what's called a Senate page, um, and this is basically a glorified, you know, delivery person. Right. <laughs> you, you get, quote, sponsored by a senator. Usually you apply to the one in your state, okay. but because Washington, D.C. doesn't have one, I applied to the most famous senator, which was Ted Kennedy. Oh, my God. Yeah, I got I, it. And I got it. And I wrote an essay. And you're really only supposed to give it to the person in your own state. But I got it. And what you do is you sit on the Senate floor, and then you go and fetch things. Um, so, And you can only serve the senators within which the party that you are serving. Mm. So if a Republican senator needed more water, I couldn't go help them. <laughs> Very That's interesting. So I know. I know. So that, you know, what I think I learned most out of that Two things. One, I saw people making alliances, and I really watched the women, of which there were very few, and the Southern women in particular, just the way that they would, like, touch a man's arm, and they would go, if you vote for my bill, I'll vote for yours, and they were using their charisma, but they were, like, steely about it. Like, these women were going to get shit done. They knew how to broker things. They would never forget, you know, to follow up. with. It just was watching them. I was so impressed with them. So I never forgot that. The second thing I never forgot was how beholden everybody was to getting reelected. And so I'm watching that thinking, well, who are the people that really affect change? Maybe the politicians, but it's really the people who are getting them elected. And that's media in my mind. So the next summer I interned at the New Republic magazine. I thought, okay, they're covering politics um, and they are a mouthpiece. You know, media can reach many more people. So I worked there and I remember going out um, one evening with one of the other people who worked there and I was sort of bright eyed, bushy tail. I want to affect the world. You know, do you think that you're, you know, you're affecting the world, aren't you? And he said, look at me. And I said, okay. He goes, people like me are reading this. And he was like a white male dude. He's like, so, you know, take what you want from that. So I think his point was, this is a bit of an echo chamber. Okay. So maybe it's not media. Maybe it's not public policy. Anyway, to jump ahead, I ended up deciding that uh, and this, by the way, was after working at some nonprofits in fundraising. I also had um, produced a short film right out of college. Again, I'm looking back at all this and laughing because I it's love it. Storytelling, it's content, it's fundraising, it's policy, all these things I'm doing now. Right. And so, the best thing you'll learn from your internships is A, what you don't want to do. Like, and then also just a variety of skills, you know, that you can compile into a career later on. That's the best yeah. thing about interning, not just like working only in PR every single summer and then going to work at a PR agency necessarily, like there's other paths, right. which is really exciting. And I also think we all need to be very aware of what world it's in. So again, take away the word industry. It's, it's in a way sort of lifestyle and, connect, and what connections are you making? 
So I love this nonprofit I worked for and I did fundraising for them. You know what? Wasn't the glamorous life that I wanted. I realized, you know, I want to be in sort of fancy restaurants mm-hmm. and like be around the movers and shakers and 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 so and I also wanted to be close to the money because I had to ask for money so often. Grants are one thing, but it was like you had to get in with the wealthy people. I realized, gosh, I want to get in with people that hold the purse strings. And for me, that was brands. Mm-hmm. And so it's not that I wanted to go into advertising. I just wanted to know the people who had the budgets who could fund the ideas and the people that I thought, you know, they should be a part of because right. those were meaningful initiatives. So I ended up going into experiential marketing. And so what was wonderful about that experience was it showed me that the sky was the limit mm-hmm. and that also you could really accomplish anything. So now, especially since a lot of what I do is offline, you need me to build you something, I got you. Like literally anything you need, I know somebody who can do it. And then we did a, something for a client in the Art Directors Club, which is a space in New York. Um, it's a nonprofit that helps connect people in the visual communications. And when I did this initiative in their space, I realized... I actually would prefer to work for them because they're a network. And what I've been amassing in the last like year and a half was all of these contacts and seeing how powerful it was mm-hmm. um, to be able to just tap into your Rolodex and make shit happen. And then they poached me. Um, and that's when it really showed me that what I'm more interested in is connecting others, that that could actually be a job. That's great. That's, am- that's an incredible path. I mean, and you just collected skills along the way that brought you to what you're doing today. Absolutely. So what are the key conversations that women, first of all, are having with each other around money? Like, Mm -hmm. what are the conversations that you're hearing? Maybe I'm sure that it's very consistent in terms of the top three things that they're saying, you know, and and, and are they having these conversations other places than where you're facilitating or are they too kind of scared to have them? So the conversations that women are having about money is they're not having it. Um, We just did a town hall in San Francisco, and one of our speakers is a recruiter, and she admitted that girlfriend she's had since she was six years old, they've never, ever discussed money, and she knows everything about them. And so it was really the the town hall that got her first reflecting, why am I not talking about this? Mm -hmm. Why is this uncomfortable or taboo? Um, So frequently, it's the first step is just making people feel comfortable thinking about it, talking about it. The second thing that, you know, I'm hearing all the time, it's negotiation. Um, A lot of fear around negotiation. Also, you know, beyond the fear, I don't know what to say. Mm -hmm. I need talking points. And then the third thing I hear all the time is, am I pricing myself correctly? No idea, which is so interesting to me because there are a million and a half resources out there on the internet. Maybe there's too many resources. You know, maybe they're not trusted sources. Mm -hmm. And so what's so wonderful about Ladies Get Paid is now everybody, you know, in the community They're meeting other HR people, recruiters, talent managers. They should be sources. They're meeting each other. They can trade advice. I always say, hold on, if you're asking other women that are undervalued as well, like don't base your salary off of it. But, you know, at the same time, you should never base your salary off of one source. You're always, you know, piecing things together. You don't really know what it means for your own value. Like it is hard to compare it. Everyone's situation is different. I think um, something off of that I want to bring up is gratitude. I think we women feel grateful for so many things in our life. I would like us to replace the word gratitude with appreciation. You could absolutely appreciate all these wonderful things that you have. Guess what? You deserve it. Mm-hmm. So to be so grateful for a job or so grateful for a partner Just think about that because that's when you just jump on the opportunity that you're given. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh, I'm so lucky. Thank you so much. Right. Um, And then there's some kind of baseline stuff that I'm surprised that many of us don't know. First of all, 
you can negotiate, right? which I didn't realize for actually many years, which is insane to me. So women just go in, they like get offered money, and they're like, yes, thank you so much. I accepted everything that I offered, got offered. I didn't do research, and I didn't think that it could be different. Wow. This is why I'm so motivated to do what I'm doing is because I know what it's like to have zero clue. Um, so yeah, that that's huge, knowing that you can ask. Um, and also be aware of the context of things. I, I'm Even though I stamp dollar bills, I really do, I stamp them with get paid what you deserve. It's not so much deserve, it's just knowing your worth within the context of the company. So knowing, all right, at a company this size with this, you know, in this location, that stuff counts. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you can't just walk in and be like, well, this is what the internet said. Right. So trying to look at it as holistically as possible is great. Um, also, other ways to value yourself. Don't just look at your resume and how what you do is tied to the bottom line because I find many, many women have soft skill roles and that can be extremely difficult to place a monetary value on or at least feel like you can defend it. There's something called inalienable sources of power. And these are things that you would not list on a resume but are a huge reason why a company would hire you. So an example of one that might be mine would be energy. Mm -hmm. I bring really great positive energy. So if you were interviewing me right now, you might actually hire me solely because of energy. This is assuming that my resume is up to speed or whatever. Uh, So energy is one. If I bring a big network of contacts with me, that counts. An employer might want to hire me. Am I, you know, the glue that holds a team together? So first you have to know that those things count. You have to identify them for yourselves and really, really believe that they count and then figure out if there's a way you can articulate it. So again, when you're thinking about how to price yourself, it's not just you're taking your title, the industry, the location, and then your tangible skills. Remember that your value does come in large part for many of us from some of those quote softer skills. But this is why there's many classes and we teach them on negotiating. It is a process. Um, but some of those like one-on-one stuff, you know, if you're not quite sure what those are, I mean, let's, let's get you started on that. Right. Start from the beginning. I love the idea of putting value to those skills because one thing I don't, I think many of us don't think about is, you know, you are going up against different candidates and those do make you more valuable and they do make you more monetarily valuable, mm-hmm. which I really just don't, I mean, as we're talking here, it's like, I don't even really think about that. Mm-hmm. Like, and you, you know, I think it gets very scary where it's like, oh, well, I'm up against this other person and you don't ask for too much money because that's where, you know, many people feel that they'll just lose the gig. But if you have all these other things that are so valuable that make you more valuable than the other person, like, you should yeah. earn for them. Okay, so if you're worried about not uh, about um, worried about losing out because of the competition, since you might be quote like overpricing yourself, if you can defend it, then you should. If the market says that this is what you should get paid, and by the way, it's called a salary band, so there is a range. But you would say, I believe I'm a top performer, and this is why. And so, according to the market, I believe I should get this because of the top range. And they're going to argue you down, and that's okay. You're going to come to somewhere in the middle. You're also going to remember things like full compensation, mm-hmm. which means that you can get stuff that's not financial that will really help you do a better job, and that's stuff like time off or then paying for school mm-hmm. and so on. Forget what the competition is. If you can make an argument for why you should receive a payment and it's backed up by evidence both in the market and your own work, go for it. And guess what? If that doesn't work, you do not want to be there anyway. Now, I always caveat these town halls with this is largely a conversation of privilege. Mm-hmm. The strongest negotiators are those that can walk away. Right, of course. And for many people, that is simply not a, a possibility. So this is me assuming that you have other options or you have some savings. 
walk away if you can. And, and actually feel, remember that many people can't. So take advantage of it. The fact that like maybe you can get by even a month without it, or you could move back home and then figure it out. You know, that you even have a home to go to. And then I believe in the fate part of it. If it's sort of meant to be, it'll be. And if you come and you respect yourself and you make a good argument and you think you'd be great for them and you're just hitting a wall, then they're not the right employers for you either. And that's okay. And I think it's a great argument for always kind of looking for a job because I think what happens is the desperation is what a lot of it is. So like if you're feeling very desperate to get out of your job, out of your environment, you hate your job, you're much more willing to just take whatever. Whereas if you're at your job and you like it, that is a way you can walk away. That's a comfort zone. If you don't have a lot of savings, if you don't have really a lot of other options, but you're gainfully employed and you know tomorrow you can go back to work, that does give you you know, that extra bit of confidence you need. You don't have that sense of panic. A thousand percent. I mean, I always, I always say that, you know, the top candidates, top people, they are never looking for work and they're always looking for work, right? So it's like, you always have to be out there seeing what the market is, companies that you feel like you might be interested in working for, finding those people, having those coffees. And you're doing that before you're even unhappy at your job. Um, and then also, if you are going to be asking for a raise, I would really suggest that you start looking for other jobs, not necessarily applying, but just seeing that there are more fish in the sea. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be intimidating too. So my other recommendation is to be in therapy. <laughs> I say that every day to people. It's just, you know, this is part strategy and it's also part personal development and just being okay with yourself right. and whatever is going to happen, you're probably going to be fine. Going to therapy is great advice for everyone. You don't need to be in a in a place of crisis to be going to therapy. It's good to maintain maintain your sanity. Yeah, and also when you are at a place where you're very you know it's a horrible environment or you've been there too long, I mean it's like we should have been doing that work way before. Like monitor yourself, continually Mm -hmm. be observing yourself. Right, and the one thing, especially in this industry of media communications, you know that this organization, New York Women in Communications, who we're representing. I think one really hard thing about negotiating a new job and also undervaluing yourself is like at some roles and some companies within media, we tend to be paid less. And when you go to a new company, you you value yourself based on your old salary. And that is a huge mistake, like making, you know, exactly what you're saying in terms of looking out there and saying, what actually are people getting paid, especially if you're switching industries? Because what happens is you just incredibly undervalue yourself. And then you, you might go and say, oh, I'm going to make 50% more than I was making my own job, old job, but you're making 50% less than every single person right. who's your coworker. And once you're locked in at your new job, you're locked in. But you can always make the argument. That's the thing. I mean, a lot of employers will ask you what your previous salary history was. Now it's becoming illegal in some states. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Massachusetts. New York's um, trying to pass it. Um, It's great. You know, on the other side, though, I have a lot of friends who are the hirers, and they want to continue to ask that. And that's fine. You don't have to respond. There, We have talking points that we teach you in our classes at Ladies Get Paid um, of all the different ways that you can say, I, I would rather not say because it's not relevant to what I'm asking for here. We're going to teach you how to say it in a way that you're not coming across as an asshole. Right. Um, you could also say what you used to make and then have the argument of why you are saying you should make 50% more. You did your market research. Your skills are transferred. Whatever it is. Like, right. you could, I mean... I did a huge jump and it's like, but that's, that was, it was appropriate mm-hmm. for both the industry and I knew I was kick ass. So I'm a top performer. I should get the top of the band for your industry. So I'm, I'm happy to tell you I made 30K at my nonprofit. 
I think it's irrelevant. Right. And do you, would you recommend if, if you do get into a position where you absolutely like just need to tell them something, sure. would you recommend not lying, but maybe telling them what your total package was worth? I mean, without putting it that way, rather than just telling them, you know, I made 30 K when you actually probably were making 45 K, you know? Yeah, and, yeah, that's true. Um, you know, I've heard from some advice that was given to me. It was like add twenty percent to it, um, or or you know, think about what it would be with like the health insurance. You know, I also when I mention that to the women in my community, I see that they get nervous about fudging it. Don't be honest. But again, if I'm sitting here saying I made thirty k last year in a nonprofit. I'm now working in advertising. Here's the research that I did. I believe that I'm a top performer for X, Y, and Z reason. This is what I would like to get paid. Can you work with it? Right. And I think that's great advice because I think a lot of times if someone, if, if they say, what was your previous salary, you just tell them a number with no context or anything, like it's very right. meaningless. If you, if you have the approach of explaining why was that number or why you should make more money or whatever it is, you know, that's, that's going to be a game changer. Yeah. So I personally don't lie. Um, and then, you know, let's say you're not changing industries, right? You're just like doing a lateral move. Well, what were the amazing things that you contributed to the last company? Like nobody, not that many people just go up in the, in the, you know, they're not just climbing a ladder anymore. So I can make jumps. And if I can show you evidence of how I contributed to this company and what I learned, then it's not like, oh, now you were junior, now you're middle management and we can only do an incremental, you know, Maybe if you're staying within the same company, that could possibly be the case. Mm -hmm. So this is me talking about a negotiation from one company to another right. and then doing like the next step of your title. But it, it there's always room to negotiate. They, they can say yes to more. Right. Um, but again, it's on you to build your case. I say, you know, it's like being a detective or, you know, an investigative journalist or a lawyer. So you're building that case and then you tie it to a number. What are your top few tips for negotiating a raise within a company. Like if you're going into your boss and asking for a raise, what are like the few things that every woman should know before mm -hmm. they do that? Two parts. And this may have been something that is a theme that keeps coming up. I think when I'm talking here today with you, part of it's internal and part of it's external. So the internal part is managing emotions mm -hmm. and managing fear. And then the external part are talking points, knowing what you're going to say off the bat, but also how are you going to respond? And practicing through a lot of those scenarios. So I'll start with the fear part. It's seeing this as combative. It's going in there thinking they're on the other side of the table. We're at odds. Mm -hmm. And that's extremely uncomfortable, particularly to women, because we are socialized to be people pleasers. Don't rock the boat. Um, I want you to, you know, I want you to like me, right? We're also not really used to rejection, to be honest. I mean, men, if they're asking women out, you know, constantly, they're probably constantly getting rejected. <laughs> and if you were the one being asked out, we are in the position of saying no. So in a way, I actually think all that contributes to our of being uncomfortable around going into situations where you might get rejected. So number one tip would be reframing the way that you look at a negotiating, seeing it as an opportunity, truly believing that you are on the same team that they want you there. They've invested time in you. Remember, attrition costs American companies $541 billion a year. I'm not saying this to make you feel arrogant, but this is a, a time to creative problem solve. Mm -hmm. Also, I think another mindset, we tend to think that men are better at negotiating than women. In a certain sense, yes. I actually don't think they are because to me, a successful negotiator is somebody who can pick up on emotional intelligence, who can re read between the lines, who can be compelling 
Um, gosh, I mean, that to me is women. Mm-hmm. We're really good at that. But we let the fear get in the way. I mean, remembering you're there to work for them. So this is not about what you deserve or how hard you worked. It's really framing it in terms of what they are getting out of it, how you are making their life easier, especially if it's your boss. If you can really see it from their perspective, you might all of a sudden realize, my God, they want me to succeed here. And if like, if I came to you and you're my boss and I'm telling you that I am unhappy because of my salary, you will try to figure out how to keep me. Right. And then, you know, constantly saying, let's figure this out together. I know there's a solution here. I really want to be here. I've learned so much. I've contributed so much. But here's what I believe that my value is worth. Work with me here on it. Mm -hmm. So as many times as possible, getting yourself to be on the same team as them. Remembering it, but also using language that speaks to it. If you don't get what you want, make sure you ask, first of all, why? Asking open-ended questions are great, by the way. I I think out of fear, we tend to talk too much. And so many women I've heard from, and myself included, will start really strong, and then we lose confidence, right. and all of a sudden we're like answering our own questions, and like we've just talked ourselves down to some horrible salary. Right, you're just like babbling, it's completely derailed. And all of a sudden you gave yourself this salary, <laughs> yeah. ah, you know, just stop, like say what you want, and sit back and be uncomfortable with the silence, because guess what, balls in their court, they now have to say something. Mm-hmm. If you get a no... Ask, when is the next time I can ask? What do you need to see for me to get the yes? And then you get it in writing. You send them an email, thank you so much. And then you get them, you know, by email to say, you will meet again in six months or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Obviously, during that time, you're going to start looking for another job. Right. Which, yeah. And it doesn't mean you're leaving. It's just, again, that backup. But always, ABL, always be looking. That's what I'm going to, like, I just feel, you feel so empowered in your job if you just know what's out there, like, and I think the worst, I really just think the worst place to be is desperate to leave because you have no, you have no leverage. I also think it's about your attitude because I think what happens, especially if they say no, or when you're starting to feel like you're not making enough money and you're like kind of mad about yes, it, yeah. it really comes across. And I think a lot of times what happens is like maybe in the two to three months leading up to this negotiation, you're being difficult. Mm -hmm. And when you get in there, it's a bad place to be. Like you should, you need to be going into that negotiation, like with your boss thinking you have worked the hardest and the best and with the best attitude for the past weeks, months, whatever. Um, because otherwise it's just not going to work. Yeah. Again, you know, the resentment that gets built up and that's because of our fear of speaking up. Um, and I see it as opportunity though. If it, I mean, it's opportunity to make things better Um, to be in a better employee for them. So that's opportunity for the boss. Also, it's an opportunity to learn. Let's say you just crash and burn. It's a horrible experience. I promise you it will get better. And then I also promise you that the next time you're going to fuck something else up and you're going to get better the next. So it's almost exciting in a way. Like life should be a learning experience. And maybe you're even kind of bored at your work, right? Like this is a challenge. Just like, you know, joining the gym or doing Tough Mudder or something. If you're a person who rises to the challenge, then really looking at a negotiation almost separately from the job, um, staying as objective as possible, which is really, really hard for those of us who care deeply about what we do. You can only manage your emotions if you practice beforehand with somebody else. So don't just do it in the mirror. So what you're going to do in this role play of you know, they're going to have this script. You're going to respond. You're just going to observe when you start to feel your blood rising. You're going to observe where you start feeling uncomfortable, where the tears happen. Are you going to fix it? No. But what helps is the fact that you've anticipated it because I actually think what gets us really emotional is the surprise of the emotion. 
So, you know, especially if you're going in extremely confident, you have your talking points, you're trying to be really logical. And then in this negotiation, oh my God, all of a sudden I like want to cry or throw up. But if you knew walking in that you were going to do that anyway, you're probably gonna cry or throw up. it might actually be okay. Right. And what do you think about this conversation of like manage like a man, work like a, I mean, there's books and stories like for me, I want to work like a strong woman. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the goal. It's not. I understand that the advantages men have and why we have that conversation, you know, but what do you think about that? And what, I don't know if women in your groups are having conversations about it. Yes. It happened in San Francisco. Um, one woman stood up and said she felt like the advice being shared wasn't good and that we should just negotiate like a man. Nobody in the room agreed with her. Um, I was glad that she said something because I think it is an interesting conversation. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it's industry based. Um, maybe if like the more traditional, you know, like the bankings or whatever, just instinctually for me, Trying to make yourself somebody that you're not, whether it's personal or professional, that is just a losing game. Mm-hmm. Ask men what they're making. I actually encourage you to do that more than you're asking women, right? For sure. That's probably the conversation we should yeah. be having. Yeah. So it's, it's you know, integrating certain mindsets, perhaps, but maybe not so much the behaviors. My big issue with all of this is, like, why are we not taught this? I wasn't taught any of it. I was not – did not come to be an adult – fiscally responsible. It's something I had to work very hard at, something I had to learn. Um, and I learned a lot of it from my husband, mm-hmm. not to necessarily say men are better, but he, Me too. <laughs> um, and I really have learned so much about, you know, not, not at all managing money like a man, but just basic fiscal responsibility, honestly, and not saying women are all spenders or whatever. This is just my personal story. But, my, but because of my personal experience, I'm like, why did I not start learning this in kindergarten? Like, right. why did I learn calculus in high school and not how to balance my bank account, how to pay taxes, what taxes are? Like, and also, you know, now that I run my own business, I, le- I mean, it's com- I'm completely self-taught. I have to learn all that stuff. But, like, I should not be learning that in my 30s. Right. I blows my mind. I, but I, in the conversations I have, you know, we're peers, right? It's got to change because we all are saying, what the hell? We need this. So I can't imagine that our kids aren't going to have it in school. We're going to like march in there and be like, all right, like if we're on the PTA or whatever, it's like, because we saw how we suffered through it. I mean, there are many things that you probably should learn on your own and by mistakes, but then I'm in the hole, you know, And and also all the student debt that people are graduating with. How can we start these conversations among our friends, among our colleagues, what, you know, what is appropriate, what is not, maybe it's just with your friends, maybe it's not with your coworkers, you know, where kind of do those boundaries lie and, and what are the conversation starters? Yeah. I, the stuff about companies, you know, even when I host my town halls and there's women, you know, that all come from a certain company, I'm really honored that they show up and they share because I know that that could potentially be a bit thorny. So I don't, I don't, I'm not quite sure, you know, what your company's policy is or how you feel comfortably great way to begin, at least with your friends, is to start sharing articles. Mm-hmm. Like, t- And there's so many now because it's so topical. Right. And it doesn't have to be like, this is what Harvard Business School said, although they are a great resource for negotiating tips. It could be more like, you know, pop culture stuff that is around, you know, for example, like Emmy Rossum um, from Shameless. Yeah. You know, negotiating not just here's what I deserve now, but back pay. Uh, <laughs> you know, so start sharing things like that um, because that'll integrate the talk of money and self-worth into the lexicon of your everyday with your friends. Just get started with the conversation, maybe even by calling out how, like, fucking uncomfortable it is. Yeah, it's just, it, it is uncomfortable. And I think 
to many of our earlier conversations about it just being a way women are raised without even knowing we're raised this way. Like we're just taught and it's, it's impolite to talk about money. Well, it is in society in general. Right. Right. And there's probably a way to go about it. So if anyone's listening from New York, think about how comfortable you are asking people how much they pay for rent, right? All the time. I always think yeah. about that. And it's such a rude question. No, I, we, don't we ask? No, always. And I yeah. would never ask anyone in any other city anything, but like I will ask anyone how much, I mean, of course. So adopt that mindset. Yeah. It's just, we, this is a New York based organization. So most people listening know, like you just, you just ask yeah. it. It's just. The norm. Okay, That's and so then funny. here's another tip. Uh, if you want to talk about it, but you have anxiety around it, if you speak up about money, you're actually helping them because they, first of all, having this conversation, like it will lead to people making more money or managing their money better. Just there's always going to be upside to this conversation. So in general, you're helping them. You also might be helping them because perhaps they wanted to bring it up and then they didn't. Mm-hmm. So if it's maybe you're framing it as it's less about you and it's more about helping others then I would assume that that would make you more comfortable to talk about it. That's also advice that I would give for being a strong negotiator. Go in there and negotiate on behalf of somebody else, right? On behalf of your family or and ladies get paid. I have the women look around at the town hall and they have a hundred women who come and I say, you negotiating for yourself is actually negotiating for the woman next to you. And if you get a raise and she gets a raise and I get a raise, then we are moving the needle collectively. So there you go. It's, it's, you know, I know this stuff is a bit tricky, but it's maybe also not as hard as you think. It's just some mindset shifts. Yes. Yeah, it's just changing the way we're thinking. Yeah. Do you have recommendations for resources, mostly probably within your own organization, but maybe otherwise where women should look to learn more about what they should be getting paid? I mean, we talked about that there are a lot of resources out there. Is there a place to start? Cause it is quite overwhelming. So there's tons of resources, um, so I'm just going to spare you a very lengthy uh, recommendation list. Um, you can always check out ladiesgetpaid.com. Harvard Business Review, um, they have a negotiating program. They also have really, really good resources on there. Talent recruiters, talent managers, great to talk to. Looking at competitor companies, what they pay. There are sites out there that will list it. Um, if it's a public company, for sure, they'll list how much people are getting paid. Mm-hmm. Um, just don't stop your research soon. So as long as, like you're saying, if you feel like you really know what you're worth, it's going to make a huge difference. Right. Never be surprised. Except yeah. in my case, I was so shocked by the misogyny that I experienced. It made me do something that's naturally right. positive. Well, that was good in the end. For me, you know, it comes to defining what money means for you. Um, does it mean freedom? Does it mean, you know, anxiety? For me, it means power. So if I had to choose between money or power, I would absolutely choose power Mm -hmm. in the sense that I want to affect people's lives in a great way, like on a large scale and in a meaningful way. Mm -hmm. Can money buy that? Yes. George Soros would say that he can, you know, the the Koch brothers can, but not everybody. Right. You know, you can get to power without money as well. Um, So that's defining for yourself what, you know, deeply moves you, motivates you. Um, and then what will prevent you from getting resentful at your work? Mm-hmm. And might, that might just be getting paid just a bit more because that'll be enough for you to have a life and not hate them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so now I'm just taking back all the advice that I said, which is like, be okay with yourself. But that's the therapy part. But like, yeah, but for me, like flexibility is the most important thing for me. Exactly. That, I can say that. So like if I went sure. to a job and they're like, we're going to pay you $10 million a year, but you are not going to be flexible. I, I mean, not much money maybe, but probably not. Like I just couldn't do it because it's just the core of my being. And I defined that for myself as well early, pretty early on in my career. And I can't tell you how many women 
um, I want to say women, it's probably many people, but now I only apparently associate with women because I have 4,000 of them. They haven't done the due diligence to define those kinds of values for themselves. They keep going from job to job to job where they think it's all about, you know, the title change or sort of the like external trappings of it and not digging deep into themselves about what makes them okay in this world. Mm -hmm. Um, And it could mean like not waking up at the crack of dawn or not having to go into the same place every day. We're not being in an environment where it's cubicles. Right. Like that's soul sucking for some people. Mm-hmm. For other people, they don't care. It's nine to five, get the hell out. They have life outside of it. But you have to know how it's affecting you on a deep, deep level. Um, and that's incorporated into your negotiation. Because the worst thing actually I think it can happen is I'm telling you to negotiate like a baller. You're going to go in there, get so much money, and then you realize you don't even want the right. job. And that happens actually quite a bit too. I people. believe it. Well, it's a, I always recommend like when you go to an interview – look around you. What's the culture? What are they wearing? Like, do you want to be there? I mean, it it really, and I think the best advice that you just gave that we can give is like, we, I don't know if we ever talk about this in conversations around, like make a list of your, what is most valuable to you and, and what is non-negotiable. And that's how I broke up with my (laughs) ex-boyfriend. Yeah. I mean, cause I, I, we're going to just talk about this for a quick second. Um, and all the town halls end up being about relationships with ourselves and others. Yeah. Uh, because at the end of the day, like it's not, I mean, money, you have a relationship with it too. Um, but so I was in love with him, but it wasn't working. I knew it wasn't working. So I made this pro and con list. And so it was all the things that he was great about him and like, what were all the things that were terrible? And my list of the things that were phenomenal about him was very, very long. And I only had one thing on the con list. And it was, he couldn't really articulate that he loved me. He couldn't say it. And so I broke up with him because I realized that was my deal breaker. And it actually felt kind of nice to not have a bunch of deal breakers. Right. Because then that makes it easier. Yeah. It's not, it's also not realistic. Like you still got to like be a human in this world. Right. right? And you're not perfect. I'm like, okay. And like the next guy that I dated, I said, uh, for me, the one thing is if you cannot say that you love me, I can't be in that kind of relationship. And he said, I can do that for you. And now I married him. And that was the first conversation we had on our first date. And he told me what his deal breaker was. Can you tell us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, he said all of his previous relationships had ended because he is really spontaneous. Like, he travels a ton. He um, likes to just sort of change things on a whim. Like, I'm going to move to Maine and start a business, which he's done. And when he said that to me, I was so relieved because I was like, good, I'm independent. Go away. Right. Like, I don't want to be around you all the time and, like, you sitting at home waiting for me. Um, and so what was so wonderful is that we were both really confident that we could handle each other's deal breakers. And I mean, it was revolutionary to do that for a personal relationship. My God, it's the same process uh, for a career. It's just, again, getting out of the trappings of, you know, what the title is or, you know, is the company like a, no, a known name? Mm-hmm. Um, it's redefining what success means to you, you know. Was it your parents who told you what success? Like, whose voice you're listening to when you're trying to figure this stuff out? For me, I had a, a mentor, a man, um, who really got me to look at whose voice was I listening to mm-hmm. in the decisions that I was making. So important. Yeah. It's so important. Now that you've been running your own business for a while, do you have any key advice to give to people who want to start their own business um, or who are running their own business? Kind of what are the lessons you have learned? First piece of advice I would give just based off of a major lesson that I've learned is think about what sacrifices you're able and willing to make. Um, you can't have it all. And this goes for folks that are full time as well. So if you have to give up something, what would you be okay with giving up? So in being in a startup, you know, it's money I had to give up. 
um, sleep, seeing friends, rethinking my relationship and how my husband and I connect, you know, connect. He has his own business as well. So now all we do is talk about business. So that's, that's one thing. Um, cutting out on your spending, huge. I always say it's never how much you make, but always how much you spend. Third is, you know, it's a lonely factor. So what are ways that you can bolster community for yourself? And usually it's with like-minded people. It's hard for other folks who are not entrepreneurs to like understand really what the roller coaster is. Um, so that's why places like WeWork um, and co-working spaces are good. Mm-hmm. Um, organizations like Ladies Get Paid are good. But there's so many now. Um, even just online forums, like there are different Slack groups. Um, and, and asking questions of people and being okay with not having it figured out. Mm-hmm. Telling people what you're struggling with. Um, so I think the worst thing you could do is keep this all inside. Um, so yeah, I think that those are my, you know, be aware of the sacrifices, spend less and find your tribe. Okay. Claire, where can we find you on social media? Where can we find ladies get paid? Yes. So I made it easy for you and got the URL of ladiesgetpaid.com and the social handle of ladies get paid both on Twitter and on Facebook. Um, and then for me personally, and I love, I want more followers on my personal one. It's Claire loves underscore you and the U is spelled Y-O-U. Claire loves underscore you. Yeah. Is that Twitter, Instagram? Uh, that's just Instagram. Okay. I like, it's just too much. <laughs> it's like too much in my life. It's like got to cut down. Uh, so yeah, you can find us there. I really encourage you all to, um, check out the workplace bill of rights. Anyone can purchase it, um, gift it to a friend. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Uh, and I think it's important to have a physical, thing that you hold on to in your life because it's a process of loving ourselves and standing up for ourselves. So having that reminder, whether it's on your desk or it's in your bag, I think it's going to go a long way for people. Even though I'm giving a lot to this business, it is giving back to me a thousand times more. This was a great conversation. The conversation around women and money. I mean, we want to be having it. You are having it. You are leading the conversation. So thank you for coming on the show. You've been listening to Coffee Break with New York Wiki. Thank you to our amazing team. Our producers, Kylie Harris, Chelsea Orcutt, and Chrisanne Grise. Our editors, Aaron Mathewson and Chelsea Orcutt. Rachel Bowie manages marketing. Alex Fetter wrote the theme. Additional recording and editing has been done at Stoosh Studios with the help of Steve Francis. For more information about Coffee Break with New York Wiki, go to nywici.org slash podcast. I'm your host, Julie Hockheiser-Ilkovich. Thank you for listening.